0: Let's have an added word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this morning that we can come before you. We've invited your presence already. We trust that you can show us what is true and what is not just from your word. And Even if we only had the life of Jesus, we could tell truth from error in these last days. Guide us to see what we should be doing while we wait. And we want to say that we trust in you, Lord, with all of our hearts. We don't want to lean into our own understanding. We want to acknowledge you. So direct our path this morning with the Holy Spirit. In, his, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Here I was at Redwood Camp Meeting, and some of you might recognize this picture from a brochure we had there. You can find it also on their Facebook page. And as I look through that brochure every year, I always go right over to the primary section, make sure everything's accurate as far as the schedule, because we have all those kids converging upon us at least 15 or 20 minutes before the adult program starts, our program starts. And so there we are on the slide usually when the adult program starts, and most mornings and evenings we don't have time to really go to anything. Sometimes in the afternoon we do, but a lot of times we're also over at the craft station with some of the kids, our own kids or other kids. And so as I go to Redwood Camp Meeting, it's a very busy time. And so when I go to the main pavilion or another tent for, to hear a meeting, I go there to hopefully to find something that the Lord wants to speak to me, just like you do every Sabbath here. Whether it's the Sabbath school class, whether it's the sermon, whether it's a scripture, whether it's a story. I was going to the pavilion hoping that I would find something that would be helpful to me. In fact, I even paused my personal devotions to make it over there in time, and I took my journal with me, and I said, Lord, I'm going to go to this, and I'm going to jot down items that you would have me to remember from this sermon. Items about you, Jesus. Unfortunately, though, as I began listening to the sermon, I thought, oh, this isn't going anywhere. This, is, this, is, this isn't good. started off with David Koresh and began to basically show how Uh, In my opinion, it it was well-meaning, but it basically, in some ways, criticized and criticized all the way through the sermon of how we use the Bible and Ellen White. And I remember partway through, two security guys came next to me, because we would work together oftentimes, and they saw me sitting there, and they came next to me, and I thought, oh, I wonder what they're going to say, and they're like, well, what do you think about this? And the speaker was going on about how basically, how we misuse the Bible and Ellen White so much. And I agreed with that, but I said, okay, bring us to the cross. Bring, you know, I, I want to see Jesus here this morning. And unfortunately, there was no Jesus in that sermon. Unfortunately, even more, it's like it, the link was made between that material and the shaking. And if you read your Bibles carefully in Hebrews 12, 1 John chapter 4, actually the whole book of 1 John, and Revelation chapter 3, the shaking takes place over really a, a terrible understanding of righteousness by faith. In fact, the three angels' messages are righteousness by faith and verity, we're told. And so as I was sitting there, I was thinking to myself, all right, let's, let's take this, this whole picture that you're painting, let's, let's now show how Jesus deals with this. And it never came. And the security guy elbowed me and said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think he's been abused and he's basically spewing it all out on us. And I jotted down in my notes, Lord, I need to hear from you. And at that point, I said, all right, what what would you say to me? He basically, the idea came to me, just leave and go back and have your own personal devotions. You know, I don't think the message that's going to shake our church is really criticizing the church. I think the message that's going to shake our church is seeing how all the errors and all the things that would take us and lead us astray go against Jesus, that are anti-Christ, in place of Christ. That's really what's going to shake our church because then the realization will come to people, am I rejecting Jesus by rejecting this truth? And if so, then a huge shaking will take place, not just some cosmetic shaking. As I think of my role as a minister, and as I went back to my camp, I'll tell you more later on how I regained my focus. But as I, thought, as I left that place, I thought to myself, why didn't the speaker refer to this quote? Of all professing Christians, Seventh-day Adventists should be foremost and uplifting Christ before the world. And you say, well, that's before the world, not the church, right? The church somehow needs something different than the world. I need something different now that I become a Christian than when I when I became a Christian years ago. No, we still need Jesus. You find many quotations from the Bible and also from Ellen White that talk about how we need to spend a time with Jesus, a thoughtful hour each day, imagining especially the closing scenes. And so this morning, I'm hoping that we can lift up Christ here and that the proclamation of the third angel's message calls for the presentation of the Sabbath truth. Here we are from week to week worshiping him. It calls for that. This truth with the others included in the message is to be proclaimed, but the great center of attraction, the glistening jewel of eternity, if you will, the one who we are truly focused on is who? Christ Jesus must not be left out. That is the problem of Laodicea in Revelation chapter three. Christ has to knock to get in. And in the ancient Near East, you find if that was taking place, especially you have a king who's got a wife and he's he's knocking on the chamber, she would naturally, you would think, let him in, right? But what happens in Revelation chapter three? The message comes and says, basically, if you do not, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. So if we leave Christ out, Then we are in the Laodicean condition. Is that clear? If I give you a bunch of facts here this morning, and next week we'll get into some early Adventist history and some facts, I'm not saying it's not sometimes appropriate, but if I give you a bunch of facts and I leave Christ out, then what have I done? I've led you to some waste places, kind of like when you lead somebody, lead your sheep out to a field. And you know it's been soaked down with water, and you know what's going to happen to a sheep after they eat some of that, if they're not used to that diet, and eat that wet grass over, what's going to happen? Bloat. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to find my sheep at a vet for something like that, or trying to somehow help it, hopefully it wears off, or there's methods in my veterinarian book that say you can puncture the, the rumen. I mean, that's, that's not where you want to go. You want to leave people. You have to take them to the place where they can have the water of life himself, Jesus Christ. Goes on. It is at the cross of Christ that mercy and truth meet. Truth and mercy have never been separated since the time of the cross, and even before. You look at Adam and Eve leaving the garden. Was there a truth involved? There was a truth. You have to be expelled from the garden. But what was the mercy in that? There will come one who will crush that head of that serpent, will lead you back to the garden. And who stations the flaming angels there at the gates? The Lord himself. Can you imagine the tears in his eyes as he watches his children leave, knowing that some of their offspring will never come back? You've got loved ones that you love, that you care about, family members, relatives, friends, neighbors. Imagine you saying goodbye to them one day or just talking to them over the fence. Jesus comes, and you know for a fact that they weren't ready, and you did the best you could, but you know that they would be lost. What is that going to do to your heart, even during the millennium as he's wiping away those tears. So imagine the Lord himself watching Adam and Eve leave, stations the flaming angels, the, the, the flaming sword and the angels there, and he knows many will be lost. And so mercy and truth met there as well. Righteousness and peace, kiss, especially at the cross. Who's our righteousness? Christ is our righteousness. And what does he bring? He says three times in the, in the book of John after he's resurrected, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. They're afraid. There's a lot we can look at and be afraid of. The other day the news was, I was busy this week and the news got flipped on for a little while and after a while I just told my wife, turn it off. Just turn it off. Enough. Now she was ready to turn it off anyway, but it was just like, I've heard enough. I don't need fear. Are there fearful things going to be coming? Yes. Do we need to be aware of them? Sure. But what is our focus? We need that peace to get us through the end of time. So righteousness and peace kiss each other. The sinner must be led to look to Calvary. You say, well, I'm not a sinner. Okay, well, you've accepted Jesus Christ, so that means you are a sinner. Basically, you recognize you were a sinner when you accepted Jesus Christ. You were in need of a Savior. Are you in any more need of a Savior? Excuse me. Were you less in need of a Savior now than you were then? Do you know you don't need Jesus any more now than you did back then when you accepted him? Maybe it was a gentle drizzle. You've been coming to church for years and eventually you feel you realize he's my savior. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Maybe it was a, a revival meeting. Maybe it was some kind of piece of literature somewhere like me. At some point you realize you needed him. Do we need him less today? So as I read this, it's very clear. The sinner must be led to look to Calvary. We're overcoming sinners, yes we are. We are basically now seen by heaven's record as having his righteousness, I understand that. But with the simple faith of a little child, we must trust in the merits of the Savior, accepting his righteousness, believing in his mercy from beginning to the end. And what did the prophets of old point to? But to the coming one to crush the head of the serpent. What did, who did Moses point to? A greater prophet who would come beyond him that would teach us these things. I mean, if you look at this, this idea of Moses and Elijah down, especially in Malachi, I know a couple of us have touched on it. We'll touch on more of it later in the next week as well. Who did they point to? Every patriarch and prophet we find pointed to Jesus. Even kings and their faulty human nature, like David, for instance, pointed to Jesus, the greater Davidic king. John the Baptist, he comes and he calls people to task for their sins. I agree. But then what does he say in John 1, verse 29? Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, I'm baptizing you with water, but there will come one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And so Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist, they all pointed to Jesus. In fact, if you look at it carefully, Moses and Elijah, as they appeared to Jesus, what did they say? They spoke of him to him of his deceased. They were, they were pointing him forward to the cross. And what did Jesus say his main work was to do? Sure, he was seeking saving the lost, but he mentions over and over again one of the conflicting truths of his day was the Messiah is going to die, be crucified, buried, and rise on the third day. The shaking message, the Elijah message, is not criticism. The shaking message and the Elijah message is Jesus. If your ears are itching for something else, find someplace else. So Jesus Christ is the message. He was the one who gave it in the beginning. He's the one who's, if you look at the plan of salvation, and so it's so much detail. He fulfills and carries out, makes sure every detail is carried out all the way down through his death, his resurrection, his soon return. We are still in his plan of salvation. It's all about him still. And is there anything else that we can marvel at rather than Jesus? Ephesians chapter 1 says that even in the coming ages, we're going to keep marveling at this. And I can't imagine coming together on a Sabbath morning after everything is all done away with from this old world. Our bank accounts, our houses, our everything else that we kind of cling to. It's all done away with. All the fear, all the sin, all the killing, all the every heinous thing we can imagine that's going on in this world. Don't you think the Lord sees all that? But what's the content of his sermon going to be that first Sabbath with us? Who's going to be presenting it? Not me. It's going to be Jesus Christ himself. He's going to be the content of it. Not all these cares that we have here. And so there's any topic, is there any topic from our newspaper or our hardships in this whole world that's going to occupy our attention each Sabbath there in the earth made new? No. This is going to be the great wonder that we Look at The Lord will occupy our thoughts. We will happily be listening to him and we will serve him all of our days. Remember how we looked at Luke chapter 12? It says, and if he, this is Jesus speaking, and if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch, that's at midnight. That's this idea of the virgins who are ready, who have their lights on, they're waiting. They know he's going to delay. Why is he going to delay? He's going to delay so that as many as possible can be saved. He wants as many as possible to walk back through those Eden gates. I mean, just look in the mirror. That's obvious, right? There's one right there. He's waited. Why is he waited? So that I could come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you could come to his knowledge, that you could share with others. If he could have just spoken in a word, then why did he become human then? He became human to influence us in a way that we would be there. That would, he would influence the disciples, and they would influence others. And so here's Luke chapter 12. We're watching. We are In the meantime, we're, we're waiting for him, and we're serving, we're sharing. We're, we're, it says we're, bla- we're blessed if we are those servants. And this note, if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. So he's like, Jesus is pointing out, they, you watch for all kinds of things. Watch and be ready for me to come back. For who to come back? Jesus to come back. Be ye therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. We know the event, main events of prophecy. We've studied those the last couple of years. But the main event of prophecy is the appearing of Jesus. The gospel going to all the world is the sign. The others are birth pains and are indicators, that's true, but they all point us to the fact that the gospel is spreading around the world. The fact that we're even sitting here today listening to a sermon about Jesus is proof that the gospel has already reached the uttermost parts of the earth. It's gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. It's gone all the way over to the seven churches. It's gone beyond that to Europe and over to China. It's, it's going even into the 1040 window right now. It's already underway. And his invasion of this world forevermore is already on its way. One soul at a time. And so we need to be ready. But what does the church look like? What does a church look like when they are waiting? You know, I found this quotation, I shared it a while back. If you're wondering where it's from, it's it's in the fifth volume of the Bible commentary. Okay? You can look up that page, 1099. The very best credentials we can carry is love for one another. All strife, all dissension is to cease. God will not accept the talents of the smartest, the most eloquent man, if the inner lamp of the soul is not trimmed and burning. If we're not the ones watching and waiting and, and trimmed and have our hearts focused on him, he will not accept it. Those pieces of paper I have in my office. I remember I was, I was getting those different degrees thinking, oh, it's just a piece of paper, right? And I remember people talking to me, trying to talk me out of going to school. It's Babylon. And I'm thinking, well, it's a piece of paper, but I'm going to use it as a learning tool that God can teach me along the way. Something through this. Fortunately for me, he put in place in front of me godly teachers. Teachers who believed in the Bible. Teachers who believed in our Adventist heritage, our prophetic guidance. That's what he did for me. And along the way, there I was learning all of these things. And I am not the most eloquent man in the world. I'm sure I slip up and mess up grammar in every single sermon, but that's okay. You should have seen me years ago. You would have heard every other word a cuss word. So it's quite an improvement, wouldn't you say? And so he doesn't take the most eloquent. He takes the one who has the inner soul lit. There must be a consecrated heart and consecrated surrender of the soul. So our message, our soul is all surrendered to Jesus Christ himself. This is what we are to do. Consecrating our souls to Jesus every day. Paul says, I die daily. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That is just boggling. That makes a whole lot of changes in my life. I tell you what. Do so I see myself as a Christian smoking cigarettes all the time? No, I don't see my... I remember I, remember I got out of jail and, and my friends were all wanting to smoke cigarettes. And I'm thinking to myself, Christians? Do they, they've been going... I mean. They're not Christians, but they've been going to church. People who go to church; they smoke cigarettes. And I just couldn't—I couldn't picture it. I mean, I, I understand we struggle, and they were—they were putting them out in the parking lot and coming inside. But, but I just said to myself, "I'm a Christian. I, I don't want to—I don't want to kill myself off." And that was my motivation for quitting smoking. It had nothing to do with, "Hey, I want to—you know—take this plan or that plan." It was—or my health. It was all, Lord, I just don't see—I just don't see this temple having that in it. And that happened to a lot of other issues, too. From my diet, I mean, we'd kill a steer every year and have a whole freezer full of meat, and I still remember thinking to myself as I was going to a health class, now by the way, those of you who eat soy, be careful, because it's causing breast cancer, some of it is. You understand that, right? So it's the canning or something, something in the process is doing it, not the soy, but it's just something in the process. So be careful on that, that stroke. I still remember doing the research about meat, thinking to myself, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove that my meat's all right. And I went to a health class at a community college, and I discovered in the process that soy had 50% less fat, basically no, I mean, no cholesterol, and I said to myself, huh. the coach of this class is going to ask me what I found. Do I want to keep eating meat? And I still remember the pizza in my hand, the, 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 the hamburger pizza, as the Holy Spirit said to me, Murray, you're going to have a heart attack like your dad and your grandpa. Stop eating that meat. And it was nobody coming along and, and, ref, and going through my refrigerator. It was the Holy Spirit saying, Murray, I want you to live as long as possible. And so that's why I'm telling you, even with soy products, be careful because there's some evidence that's showing that that's a problem as well. We should take care of this temple, consecrate it daily, use it for God's glory. That's what this is talking about consecrating God, our temple to God. And so while we wait, we want to know the Savior. We want to serve the Savior. And you know what? This is my theme for the whole year, sharing the Savior. Is that too simple? I want to be ready to know him personally, but it's not enough for me to know him, not enough for me to have those personal devotions, not enough for me to reflect on Scripture and say, Lord, wow, powerful. You're doing such a wonder in my life. It's got to be more than that now. It's got to be going out. And that's the problem with all these sermons that I'm preaching. Too many words, not enough action. You're all going to see a huge change in the next year. Because I used to have four and five churches, I would not be at the same church every Sabbath. I'd be out doing evangelistic meetings in town after town. I'd be going out door to door all the time on my five days during the week before I make my board meetings and all that. I'd be guiding members through training seminars. And I can honestly tell you, I have failed you in that in the last two years. I've babied this church. I've learned in the process, and I've been reminded. And next week, I'm going to go through and show you kind of what God has reconvicted me about in the last year. And so, yes, I know I want to know the Lord, and I know you've helped me know the Lord. But it's time. It's time to do a radical shift in the way we share Him. And so I believe the Lord is providing a way back to the garden that we forfeited and he expelled us from. I believe the Lord has provided that ransom for our souls. I believe the Lord is giving us this joy as we respond to his love. And he wants us to have that first love experience. That's why he's going to the seven churches, isn't he? That's how we find true happiness is him. And this is really our text for the day. It took me a while to get there. Sorry about that. But here it is. Then Peter said to him, Lord, speak thou this parable to us or even to all. Is this parable that he's talking about of us having our lamps lit just for us, the disciples, or for the whole crowd? And you notice Jesus never answers the question, does he? Keep reading. Look, he just keeps going on. The Lord said, who then is that faithful (laughs) and wise steward?" He doesn't even answer the question. He leaves it open. I think for two reasons. Number one, it did apply to the whole crowd. But number two, it stretches down through time to you and me. Maybe that's too much of a homiletical license I'm taking. But as I look at it, I notice he doesn't answer it is it to everyone? To those who have ears, to hear it is. And here we are, hearing it. This leaves this parable open to be applied, not just to those disciples, not just to the crowd of his day, but even to our day today, because we are reading it as his disciples today. Faithful and wise, it mentions. Who is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? faithful and wise. These are the ones who look after the household of their master. I mean, because after a certain point in the Jewish economy, once, you, once your flocks increase or your agrarian pursuits increase, eventually you have more servants. I mean, you all know this. Uh, even if you've got a flock of five, 10, 20, 30 sheep, you know after a while you need some help, especially at certain points. You're going to hire a shearer, you're going to hire this, you're going to hire some things out. So imagine there you are in the ancient Near East and your household has expanded, your fields have expanded, you're going to hire people. And one of them that you're going to hire is someone to oversee it. Especially if you've got to go on a journey to go maybe get another purchase somewhere else. They're going to run your affairs. They're going to make it run smoothly. They're going to make sure your family is taken care of if your family's left back there. And they're going to take care of their fellow servants. That would be the overseer, the steward. And it says here that the steward would be faithful and wise. And one of the things they would do would be to give the fellow servants in the household, their portion of meat in due season. Portion in due season. Ration, if you will, or their allotted amount in due season. Not necessarily a huge all-you-can-eat buffet. Kind of like when Joseph took care of his father and his brothers. It says in Genesis 47, it says, Joseph nourished his father and his brothers and all his father's household with bread according to their families. He divided it up. And we know that was a famine time. So that's rationing. That's what we have going on here. Is that the faithful steward in makes sure everybody is getting fed. And it says, blessed is that servant. There's that word again. Happy is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, will find so doing. The servant is going to be pointing them to the master, really. He's the one who provided this. I'm just giving it to you. Imagine somebody telling the steward, thank you so much for that. And what's the steward going to say? i you know, just doing my job, right? I didn't go out and the steward didn't go out and make all of that money. It's actually the, the one who's the Lord of the master. And so this, this is one possibility. We could have, be the steward who's happy that the Lord finds him doing, and it says here, I tell you truth, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. That boggles my mind. Ruler over all that the master has. See, that's one possibility in this story. But as you know, Jesus' stories, oftentimes there's a, there's a contrast and oftentimes there's a bang, main point at the end, law of in-stress. Because the second possibility is this. And it's told to you clearly from the Greek. Look how awkward the English is. But and, I mean, sorry guys, but that's really not a good translation. But it does give you the full force of the fact that a conjunction is being used, saying, here's the other option. And then if that servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and drink and to be drunken. Oh, wow. The Lord delays his coming. So I'm going to treat people the way I want to treat them. It's not necessarily the way I want to be treated, but for my benefit. This is either in a sense of someone scoffing. Oh, he's, he's never going to come back. Or what if it's in a sense of thinking, well, things haven't quite happened the way the prophecies say they're going to. So I got some time. Maybe the sequence of events has not happened to the point where that person feels that the Lord is coming right back. Maybe the sequence of events has led them to have a sense of ease, like, oh, oh, wait a minute. All the world religions haven't united yet. Sunday law hasn't taken place. I guess I'll just, right? That's not the way the Lord lived his life. And he knew the time prophecies. And he knew that there was a 2300-day prophecy, didn't he? He knew that. And yet, what is he doing every day? He's teaching. He's healing. He's preparing his disciples. He's sending them out. He's debriefing with them. He's sending them out again. Eventually, he gets 150. And eventually, it spreads in 500. He get thousands. He knows all that's going to take place. He also knows of a great persecution that's going to wipe out thousands of them. But he does each day. You notice three and a half years of ministry, but I I was this morning reflecting on some scripture and I thought, okay, Lord, what was heaven like for 33 and a half years? While you were, you know, you ever asked that question? I I never even asked that question before. Imagine here's God becoming human for 33 and a half years. The Son, the onlooking universe, we're told in Ephesians, is is like this world's like a theater. They're they're watching, imagine the Son, the one who's always there representing the Father, coming to all these sons of Adam and all of that, representing. Love all of a sudden becoming human, risking his very life. Don't you think each day mattered in that 33 and a half years? It says that every day he would get up early. He would arise while it was still even dark, and he would pray. And we know from the Gethsemane experience, he prayed for three hours in that one time. And so as I'm thinking of this, man, imagine thinking that somehow, you know, there's going to be a shaking, a little time of trouble, a Sunday law, a great time of trouble, all this Jacob's time of trouble. But by the way, what gets you through Jacob's time of trouble? It's knowing that your sins are forgiven by God, really. You're wrestling with God. And you're not wrestling with the beast and all the other ugly things. You're wrestling with God. I, is my heart right with God? Why not have that wrestling match now? And then when you, you later on, you're, you're sharing. You're not wrestling with him at that point. Wrestle with him now and then be close to him. And eventually, you might wrestle at the end a little bit more. But but what if our sequence is so intense and we're focused on that so much that we don't focus on the Savior? What if we focus on the sequence more than we do the Savior? I think they, they're, they're complimenting each other, don't you? It's like the plan of salvation led up to Jesus' time where he said, the time is at hand. They were complimenting, they were pointing to Jesus. We can't focus on one without the other. Could we focus on the sequence more than the Savior and it would lead to carelessness? Could it lead to meanness? Could it lead to survival of the fittest, even in the church? A few years ago, I will be honest with you. I was done a few years ago with all organized religion. Not with Jesus, not with the Bible. I was tired of being stabbed in the back by people that I trusted. And then I would find out later that basically they were, were, you know, basically the pastor has to be a forceful dictator-type guy. And if you're not, you're a weak leader. You're seen by some as a weak leader. I think your strongest leader is actually the one who gathers those around him. But as I as I was getting stabbed a few times, the thought came to me. Satan brought it. It's like, why don't you just go away from all this? You know, go out and go camping, you know, for a few years, and and just, you know. And then I had to go back through and rehash. This is what the Lord brought me through. He brought me through church conflicts before. He brought me through all these things before. He brought me through all the Greek and the Hebrew. He brought me, and just keep going on, he brought me all the way even to this point. But I began asking myself, maybe we've looked so long at meanness and survival of the fittest and error because we're trying to refute it like the churches and you find in the seven churches that we become like them. Very much so at nominating committee. And so, if we focus on the Savior, though, I don't think it's going to lead to meanness. I don't think it's going to lead to care, care, carelessness or callousness or self-confidence, look at me. And so, as I look at this text, beating the, their fellow servants, you could apply that in so many ways. But just simply, it's this. The one who's focused on their Savior, rather than, hey, things are kind of delayed, he's not coming back, I can do what I want you're focused on the Savior, you're not going to even focus on the sequence. You're going to do the duties that he brings before you each each day. You know what needs to be done. You're faithful. You're wise. You know what needs to be done. Because if you don't, you end up becoming an infidel. You you see that word unbelievers down there? going to appoint you a ration, a severely cut ration, with the unbeliever. That's infidelity in the Greek. Infidelity. That's like cheating on somebody that you love. So the Lord of the servant will come in a day when he does not look for him. The sequence isn't quite right, but here. Okay, I'm not saying that's exactly what's going to happen. I'm just saying, maybe it didn't happen exactly the way he planned. Maybe things kind of went ra- more rapidly than planned. And then boom, there, there's the master. At an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder, will point him his portion with the unbeliever. So we really have two people that we can look at here. We can be the one who's faithful and wise, who who takes care of those around us, who feeds in their portion. We can apply that to the word of God or those who basically are like this. And I believe these people here are Satan's right hand helpers because I believe while we wait, we must not become beastly like the beast that we oppose. I believe that we must not begin to get drunk on the doctrines that our human nature wants to hear. We must instead look for our Savior. We must know him. We must serve him. We must then speak of him and share him. We reprove sin, but we do it. And look at this quotation. Satan well knows that all whom he can lead to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his tactics. What what is that prayer in the scriptures going to do for you? It's going to unite your heart in oneness with the Savior. Enoch walked with God in oneness with him. We must have that. Therefore, he invents every possible device to engross the mind. Now, we got more now than they did then, don't we? We're not in horse and buggy era where they're trying to do all that stuff we watched on the mission video, and we're not, we're, we can communicate in so many ways. We can watch on demand anything we want, basically. We may have to pay for it, but you, go, you can watch it. And there has ever been a class professing godliness who instead of following on to know the truth, make it their religion to seek some fault of character or error of faith, and those whom they do not agree. Such are Satan's right-hand helpers. Not even left-hand, right-hand helpers. The kind that you say, go. Plants them at the right time to cause suspicion and to cause problems in the church. And I can honestly tell you, I was trained to be kind of like that, to pick things apart. It, only t- it took Jesus to really undo that. Accusers of the brethren are not few, and they are always active when God is at work and his servants are rendering him true homage. You're his servants. They will put a false coloring upon the words of acts of those who love and obey the truth. They will represent the most earnest, zealous, self-denying servants of Christ as deceived or deceivers. I think we need to make sure that, that the icebergs ahead of us, were hitting them, but we're, we're not we're hitting them with Christ. Otherwise, we get ourselves into this place where where even somebody who's, we'll say, far left on an issue, like the person I was listening to at camp meeting, automatically, as I was sitting there, after about 30 minutes, it's just like, where are you, Jesus? I just don't see you here. And I, in essence, sensed that at that moment, that person was being one of Satan's helpers to kind of get my mind off of Jesus. So I literally had to leave that situation for a little bit. They'll represent the most earnest, zealous, self-denying servants of Christ as deceived or deceivers. It is their work to misrepresent the motives of every true and noble deed, to circulate insinuations. Pause there. Two years ago when I got here, we talked about insinuation as counterfeit prayer. Why is that? When you start insinuating about people, you don't even know their motives. Like this morning, I said hi to somebody, walked into the office, and what if I had walked by you, because I was in a hurry, right? And you start thinking to yourself, well, he doesn't like me. He doesn't. And by the time I get out of there, it's like, I hate the pastor, okay? Or, or maybe something like that happens to you in the foyer, right? Or maybe something happens outside of this whole, this whole property, you know? And after a while, you just you start reliving it and reliving it. And after a while, you start fulfilling that. You start acting differently towards that person. You start, you start even spreading it around like the fiery stone. Satan walked upon the fiery stone. So Insinuation. We have to watch out for circulating insinuation, for widespread trade of trying to read people's motives and we don't even talk to them yet. So if you have something against me, just feel free to talk to me. If you have something against each other, talk to each other. Otherwise, we get into this criticism, vicious circle of abuse, and eventually we become those very servants who are beating their fellow servants. And so as a minister, my duty is clear. I need to lift up Jesus. Many voices are advocating error. Let your voice advocate truth. Present subjects that will be as green pastures to the sheep of God's fold. Do not lead your hearers into waste tracks where they will not be nearer the fountain of living water than they were before hearing you. Present the truth as it is in Jesus, making plain the requirements of the law and the gospel. Present Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Tell of his power to save all who come to him. The captain of our salvation is interceding for us, for you and for me not as a petitioner to move the Father to compassion, but as a conqueror who claims the trophies of his victory, who claims through us powerful, wonderful deeds beyond our imagination. He's able to save to the uttermost all who come to him by God. Make this fact very plain. And so as I read that text back in Luke chapter 12, and that's where we're going to go next. Young people, here's your answer to your FBI sheet. I want you to read that carefully with me in Luke chapter 12. He who do not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask more. So as you look here, there's a servant who knew his master's will, verse 47, does not prepare to meet him, and it says he will be beaten with many stripes. In verse 48, but he who did not know yet committed the things deserving of stripes will be beaten with few stripes. What is he telling us here? We have the opportunity to know. Of all the people I've interacted with, I remember when I first became a Christian. I went around different churches. The Seventh Day Adventist Church. I felt so impressed with our Bible knowledge that 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 we would, and not only that, but the love of Jesus. When I first came in the door of a church, and these people were hugging me because they've been praying for me. They didn't realize what I was struggling with at the time or what I had been struggling with all the whole story. I didn't know much. But I think as Seventh-day Adventists, we have been given a lot of light. And if we don't let that light shine, it's darkness. If we keep it to ourselves, if we somehow let it get short-circuited by us going after each other, then it says there, we'll be beat with many stripes. That's one thing I never really had to deal with was the belt or all of that very much in my family. And I don't think God is looking around with a huge heavenly belt to whip you. But I, I do believe there's a, sh- a punishment coming. There will be, there will, imagine the anguish of soul if for some reason something got in our way of sharing love, the love of Christ with people and those people died or something while we were in the whole midst of that whole mess. We must remain focused on him. Keep our lamps trimmed. It says that they knew the Lord's will. They knew that the Lord wanted them to care for their family, their, their spiritual family, their possessions, the fellow servants. They gave their all for Jesus. Much is required of us. Paul knew much and Jesus required much from him. Moses was trained in the schools of Pharaoh and Daniel in the courts of Babylon, yet they used that knowledge, that much for God. You have been given various experiences, various trainings in various fields, various knowledge. God is requiring that of you and of me. And I believe this also shows us that God can use any of us. Any of us. And so while we wait, we want to know the Savior. We want to serve the Savior. We want to share the, the Savior. He's the focus. And there's three activities we can do while we wait. While we wait, we must know Jesus deeply. While we wait, we must treat others kindly. That's the serving Jesus. Because he said, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. And after all, how did he treat me when I was far from him? How did he treat you when you were... In sin, Or doing something that you knew he did not approve of. He convicted you of sin, of righteousness and judgment, but, but he sent that still small voice to be cleansed and confess your sins and be brought to him as well. And so while we wait, we must also share the message of Jesus because this is really righteousness by faith and verity with everybody. And so there I was hearing that sermon. Thought it was well-meaning. I was looking for any word from Jesus. And I went back to my campsite, took out my journal, began looking at a few Bible verses that I had already planned to look at that morning. And as I was reading those Bible verses, it was about God's peace. I looked up and what do you think I saw? And not quite like that. But I I was sitting under the redwood trees. And I just imagined to myself how many years those trees had been there for. And how many years they'll be for in the future if the Lord doesn't come. And I imagine thinking to myself, Lord, what's it going to be like to be under that tree of life? That tree of life that's been there since the Garden of Eden all the way down. I don't see any record of it being chopped down, do you? It's there in the earth made new. What's it going to be like to be at your feet? And the simple, still, small voice said, it's going to be like this. There I am reading his words, asking him to to reveal things to me put aside all the criticism of that sermon and just said, you know, okay, that's, that's where somebody else's journey is. That person's been hurt and abused and they're putting that on other people. But I'm going to stay focused on you, Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. There was that peaceful scene and later on, as I read my devotions, he kept saying, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Three times. And so while you and I wait, let us firmly be anchored in Jesus. Let us sit at his feet let that be the place where we go from, where he says, "Bid me, he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling. Let him bring you to that place and then go face the world. Then go face the errors. Then go face everything that goes against him. But face it with Jesus as your anchor. I'm going to invite our pianist to come and to play this song. And next week I'm going to call for a specific decision as to what we can do as a church to begin sharing this with not just Anderson but beyond as well. But this week, I just want to say, would you like to be firmly anchored in Jesus Christ? Would you like to be that faithful steward, servant of Jesus who looks to Him daily as your friend and then shares that portion with those around you? If you'd like to, feel free to stand and sing this song with me.
1: lift and the cables strain will your anchor drift or firm remain we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll fastened to the rock which cannot move grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love if tis safely moored twill the storm withstand for tis well secured by the Savior's hand and the cables passed from his heart to thine can defy the blast through the strength divine We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love It will firmly hold in the straits of fear when the well secured breaker's still is near, through the tempest's rave and the wild winds blow, not an angry wave shall our bark overflow. We have the anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. It will surely hold in the floods of death when the waters cold chill our latest breath. On the rising tide, it can never fail with our home by within a veil we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll fastened to the rock which cannot move grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love, when our eyes behold in the dawning light, shining gates of pearl, our harbor bright, we shall anchor fast to the heavenly shore, with the storms all past forever. an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll fastened to the rock which cannot move grounded firm and deep in the savior's love
0: father in heaven we're so thankful of jesus we're so so thankful that he left courts above, came down to this world, takes us literally by the hand with all the truths he's given us and leads us step by step in a journey with him to that beautiful harbor that you have ahead of us. Guide us to stand firm in you today. Guide us to know you because really in knowing you we can face all error, all fear, all war around us. Thank you Jesus for your love. Guide us all the way to the new earth where we will see you face to face and I pray that all of us will be there. In the wonderful name
1: of Jesus.